I ask you, please stand with me out of reverence for the word of the Lord as we, uh, as we look at this, at this passage. So, again, the focus this morning is, is on Luke um, 19, verses 20 to 27, but going to go all the way back to, uh, uh, back to verse 11. So Luke, ni- in, in reading it, verse, verse 11 of Luke 19. As he heard these things, he proceeded to tell a parable because he was near to Jerusalem. And because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. He said, therefore, a nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then return. Calling ten of his servants, he gave them ten minas and said to them, Engage in business until I come. But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him, saying, We do not want this man to reign over us. When he returned, having received the kingdom, he ordered these servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him that he might know what they had gained by doing business. The first came and said to him, Lord, your mina has made ten minas more. And he said to him, Well done, good servant, because you have been faithful in very little, you shall have authority over ten cities. And the second came, saying, Lord, your mina has made five minas. And he said to him, You are to be over five cities. And another came saying, Lord, here's your mina, which I have kept away in a handkerchief, laid away in a handkerchief, for I was afraid of you, because you are a severe man. You take what you did not deposit and reap what you did not sow. He said to him, I will condemn you with your own words, you wicked servant. You knew that I was a severe man taking what I did not deposit and reaping what I did not sow, then why did you not put my money in the bank? And at my coming, I might have collected it with interest. And he said to those who stood by, take the mina from him and give it to the one who has ten minas. And they said to him, Lord, he has ten minas. I'll tell you that to everyone who has, more will be given. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. But as for these enemies of mine who do not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them before me. This is the word of our God. May he write his eternal truths upon our hearts for his glory and for the building of his church. Please be seated. And let's pray again together. Almighty God, as we approach your word this morning, help us, I pray, to see you for who you are. And help us, Lord, to see who we are before you. Help us to see, Lord, whether we are truly your servants or whether we are wicked servants. Help us to see, Lord, whether we are truly your children, whether we are truly born again or whether we are not. May you lend your power through your spirit to open eyes, Lord, to spiritual realities And Lord, I pray that you would help those who are are truly your servants to be more faithful for your glory. And I pray that those who are not yet your servants, that they would repent under the proclamation of the gospel. And that they would become servants and bring forth much fruit for your glory. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. It has been said that a life well lived is a life well remembered 
Benjamin Franklin said, if you would not be forgotten as soon as you are dead, either write something worth reading or do things worth writing. But at the other end of the spectrum, Franklin wrote of those who have done nothing with their lives. He said, some people die at 25 and are not buried until 75. How will you be remembered after your death? What will you be known for? Now, you might not write any books, and people not, might not write books about you, but how will people remember you? And infinitely more important than that, what, does God, what do God's books say about you? Revelation 21.12 says, And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. You'll be judged by God according to what you have done. Well, this past week, Jane has been teaching the kids about Benjamin Franklin and their, their studies of history. It's, that's one of the advantages of, of growing up in a multicultural home. They get to learn about Canadian history. They get to learn about American history. But even as most of us here are Canadians, I'm sure you know a little bit about Benjamin Franklin. You probably know that that he was one of the founding fathers of the United States. You know that he was one of the, the five men who helped write the Declaration of Independence. You might even know that, that Franklin was a polymath, a, a man with, with vast and a wide-ranging intellect. You might know that he was a, a successful printer, in fact, the most successful printer at his time in all of Philadelphia. You might know that he was a scientist, that he discovered that lightning was actually electrical and that he invented the lightning rod. You might know that, that Franklin invented the bifocals, and, and several of us, including me, are actually benefiting from that invention right now. You might know that he was an influential diplomat and, and a key reason why France aided the United States in the American Revolutionary War. There, there's no doubt that Benjamin Franklin was an extremely intelligent and industrious man. He had an eye on, on, his, on his future and on, on how he would be remembered at the end of his life. And he actually wrote his own epitaph, the, the engraving that he planned to be on his tombstone at the age of 22. Listen to it. The body of B. Franklin, printer. Like the cover of an old book, its contents torn out and stripped of its lettering and gilding, lies here food for worms. But the work shall not be wholly lost, for it will, as he believed, appear once more in a new and perfect edition, corrected and amended by the author. Sounds quite Christian, doesn't it? But at the end of his life, he had changed his will to, to include... Just these words on his, on his epitaph, just these words on his tombstone, Benjamin and Deborah Franklin. Somewhere along the way, Benjamin Franklin's perspective changed. Benjamin Franklin wrote many books, and many books were written about him. But what does God's books, what do God's books say about Benjamin Franklin? The words of Benjamin Franklin's own autobiography give us a pretty good idea. As to his religion... In his biography, he identified himself as a thorough deist. He was a deist. Now, I don't know if you know what, what deism is, but, but deism is a belief that God created the universe, 
and then steps back from the universe and, and does not do anything in the universe. He just sits back and watches what takes place. That he leaves the universe to operate under natural laws without any intervention whatsoever. So he identifies himself as a deist, but Franklin's religion wasn't as simple as that. Uncharacteristically, Franklin called for prayer at the Constitution Convention when they were establishing the Constitution. And he, he later said that, that it, it was his age and his experience that led him to belief in prayer and, listen, the providence of God. He said, I have lived, sir, a long time, and the longer I live, the more convincing proofs I see of this truth that God governs in the affairs of men. Now, this is very contrary to deism. He's, he's kind of an enigma. How do you explain this discrepancy between somebody who, on the one hand, appears to believe in the power of prayer, and then on the other hand, testifies he doesn't believe in prayer? Through deism. Well, it's pragmatism. Mere pragmatism. As explained by, by Christian biographer Thomas Kidd, I would commend him, him to you. He's a Baptist historian. Franklin saw Christianity as a resource for encouraging Americans to develop moral fortitude. Now that does line up with deism. That is deism. Like two other founding fathers, John Adams and Thomas Jefferson, Franklin denied salvation by grace alone. He denied the divinity of Jesus Christ. He denied the Trinity. Again, in the words of Thomas Kidd, Franklin was the pioneer of a uniquely American kind of faith, one which touted the benevolent effects of faith even as it jettisoned virtually all theological beliefs. We see this kind of religion all around us today. There's an external moralism, but a denial, either in, in word or in faith, of the actual working out of that salvation. It has been called therapeutic moral deism. Deism. Or possibly theism at best. So that describes Benjamin Franklin, describes much of what we see in the visible church today, but does it describe you? Is, is religion something just external, just a set of, of things that you do? Or is it a relationship with Jesus Christ? Relying on him and him alone for your salvation. And so Franklin, by his religion, was not a Christian. He might have advocated Christian morality, but he had certainly not lived by Christian morality. In his auto, also in his autobiography, Franklin wrote of his frequent relationship, relationships with those who he termed as low women. He's speaking of harlots. This is Benjamin Franklin. You won't, you won't hear about this in most history books. In fact, he was known to frequent brothels. Benjamin Franklin fathered at least one child to a woman he was not married to. There's estimates that go as many as 15 children that he had with women he was not married to. And his immorality got even worse the older that he got. He actually wrote a letter to a young man encouraging him on how to choose a mistress. Now, Benjamin Franklin accomplished a lot in his life, but the world tends to, to overlook these things. In the, in the United States, there, there are over 23 counties, 50 municipalities, and 59 schools named after Benjamin Franklin. 
Many people admire Benjamin Franklin, but what do God's books say about Benjamin Franklin? And the far more pressing and pertinent question that you must ask yourself is what do God's books say about you? It was appointed to man for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. Hebrews 9, 27. So in our text here this morning, we're focusing on Luke 19, 11 to 27. As Jesus is approaching Jerusalem on the eve of the triumphal entry, he teaches here the parable of the talents. Let's recap. A nobleman departs to a far country to be made king. And before he leaves, he calls ten of his servants before him, and he gives each of them one minas. That's the equivalent of about a, a hundred days labor for a day laborer. And tells them to invest the minas, mina that they've been given until his return. And Luke tells us the meaning of the parable. Jesus wants to show his followers that he has not come to establish his kingdom now. His followers expected an, an earthly kingdom, and they expected it to be established right away. And so, so Jesus is doing this because as he approaches Jerusalem, the expectation of his followers is that he is now going to wrest control from the Romans and assume the throne and become the, the and fulfill the, the messianic kingdom of of his forefather, David. But Jesus is saying, well, hold on a second. This is, that is going to happen, but it's not going to happen yet. Jesus is telling this parable to, to show that there's, there's an interval, there's a gap between the establishment of his, sorry, the, between the inauguration of his kingdom at his, at his incarnation when he took on flesh and came to earth and the fulfillment or establishment of his kingdom upon his return. And there's going to be a time period in between. And we, we've now been waiting 2,000 years. It's a very long time period from a human perspective. And so Jesus was teaching his followers then, as he's teaching his followers now, to be faithful. To be faithful as we eagerly await his return and the fulfillment of his kingdom. So in this parable, like the preceding passages of this section, we see that, that there is a judgment. And at the judgment, it's going to be shown that there are two kinds of people. Those who enter the kingdom and those who don't. We focused last week on, on the two faithful servants, those who have, have entered the kingdom, those who are, who are the, the master, the king referred to as, as good servants, or as good and faithful servants. So this morning, we're going to be focusing on those who are not, on those who are outside of the kingdom of God. Now we were briefly introduced in verse 14 to the citizens of the country who hated the nobleman and they did not want him to be king over them. And there's, there's a, a parallel in the history of that time as, as the, the, the people of Israel did not want Herod's son to reign over them and he had gone, but he had gone to Rome to be made king and the people actually sent a, a delegation saying, we don't want him to be king. And the Romans established some, a, sort of a compromise where he came back and they said he would, could earn the title of king, but he actually never did earn the, the title of king. 
They never lived up to that title. And so there's a parallel in that culture in that, at that time, and it might have been that this is what, what Jesus had in mind as a, as a picture of, of himself going and the people not wanting him to be king. Of course, he's a, the, the perfect and the good and the wise king, whereas the son of Herod was, was quite the opposite. But these people, these people who rejected him were part of the group who did not enter the kingdom. But again, the focus last week was on those who do. These two faithful servants who came before the king at his return. And, and the first showed a, a prophet of ten minas, and the second showed a prophet of five minas. The first was given authority over ten cities, the second over five cities. In this we see that the blessings of God and the, the generosity of God in, in giving eternal rewards and that are in keeping with the faithfulness that the, the individual has shown and demonstrated in their life. That these servants, these faithful servants, worked, but ultimately it was the king's mina that made the prophet, just as God is, is the one who accomplishes good works in and through his servants to this day, and he will continue to do so until that day when he returns. Here this morning, we're going to be focusing on the other kind of people, the people who do not enter the kingdom. So this week, we're going to see in verses 20 to 24, the unfaithful servants, and then verses 25 to 27, the king's judgment. The, the example of the unfaithful servants is how we not yet. And, and what happens to them provides a dire warning for us. It points to coming judgment, and, and it instructs you to examine your heart before the Lord. This is an opportunity for you to ask what kind of person you are, whether you are one of those who enters the kingdom or one of those who does not enter the kingdom by your fruit or your lack thereof. So are you one of those who will enter the kingdom, or are you one of those who will not? Examine yourself. If we judge ourselves truly, we will not be judged. 1 Corinthians 11.31. So then the unfaithful servant in verses 20 to 24. The unfaithful servant. After the first two servants come before the king and are commended for their, uh, they're commended and their position is elevated, another servant comes. Another came. Now he is he is not another servant, but merely another. And in a moment he's going to be called something much, much worse. The servant says, Lord, here's your mina, which I have kept away in a handkerchief. So he calls the king Lord, but he's not acting like the king is his Lord. He was, in to was told to engage in business until the king returned, but all that he did was hide the mina away in a handkerchief. He was directly disobedient to the king, the king's command. Now, there was some discussion and disagreement between commentators as to whether Jesus includes this man as a, a representation of an unfaithful Christian 
So someone who's actually saved, but, but is unfaithful, or as an unbeliever. Now it's possible that this, that this, this other will lose his reward, but will not lose his salvation, like in 1 Corinthians 3.15. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. That's possible, but I don't think so. Because in that context, Paul is, is dealing with a, a very different issue. He's dealing with the Corinthians who were dividing amongst themselves. They were dividing between Paul and Apollos and, and Peter and Christ, and they're saying, I'm, I'm of this party and I'm of that party. It's a very different situation. Paul was saying there that, that, that all of the servants were building on the foundation of Jesus Christ. But I believe that Jesus here is speaking of an unbeliever as one who has a reputation for being a servant, but is actually a rebel. Like those of the church in, of Sardis in Revelation 3.1, I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Now I tremble under this. And so should you. Whatever others thought of him, his works or his, his lack thereof, they look more, he looks more like that of an unbeliever than as a believer. And Matthew 7:20 is clear. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. Now, this, this servant's, so-called servant's rebellion might not be as direct as that of the citizens, but it's rebellion nonetheless. He doesn't out and out say, I will not let this man be king over me. But he's showing that he doesn't want the man to be king over him because he is rejecting his authority. His works look like that of an unbeliever, and, and so do his words. So he adds, he adds defamation to his disobedience in his defense. He slanders the king. He, he says, for I was afraid of you because you are a severe man. You take what you did not deposit and reap what you did not sow. He says he was motivated by fear. He says he was afraid because the master is severe, because the master is stingy. He claims the king took what he didn't deposit. But the king had just made a deposit with each of the ten servants. He claims that the king reaps what he didn't sow, but he, he just sown in the lives of each of his ten servants. It's a slander. That the king had very generously blessed the faithful servants who had invested his money. It was his money that he invested in them. Exactly the opposite of what this so-called servant was saying or charging. The king's money had made the prop but the king blessed the servants anyway. It's really revealing in, in what he says here is that he doesn't know the king at all. They had no relationship with him. But when you really know the Lord Jesus, his loving character, duty becomes a delight. It becomes a delight. Well, the first two servants saw the king's commendation and then the explanation and then the elevation. The wicked, with the wicked servant, we see the king's condemnation and explanation and confiscation. 
The king's verdict also reveals that the servant's an unbeliever. He says to him, I will condemn you with your words, you wicked servant. This is not speaking, in my opinion, this is not speaking of an unbeliever, rather of a believer. The king condemns him. He judges him guilty and liable to judgment. The king calls him a wicked servant. Again, before he was described as just another, but now he's described as a wicked servant. As great as it would be to hear the words from Jesus on that day, well done, good and faithful servant. What would it be like to hear Jesus call you wicked servant and to say that he is condemning you? There are no worse words that could be uttered. The words of the servant are used by the king as exhibit A in his condemnation. The king quotes the wicked, the wicked servant's excuses back to him. He, he's saying, if I'm so severe, and if I take what it didn't deposit, and I reap what it didn't sow, then why didn't you at least put the mina in the bank? So it could have earned interest on it. So he commands that the mina be confiscated from the wicked servant and give to the faithful servant who had ten minas. The faithful servant is again elevated. He's elevated even further than he was before. Again, contrary to the wicked servant's defamation of the king, we see the extravagance of God's grace, but we also see the righteousness of his justice. Unbelievers like this wicked servant find all kinds of excuses as to why they will not love and serve God. They claim that God is unloving or unjust or evil or that he doesn't exist. But in their heart, they know the reality. Creation bears witness to God and his character. The law of God is written on their heart. They know who God is but they willfully reject him. We read all about that in Romans 1, 18 and following. There's no such thing as an atheist, only as an anti-theist. It is not God who is unloving, unjust, and evil, but them. It's them. They are unloving and unjust and evil. John 3.20, for everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his words should be exposed. Unbelievers love their sin, and so they hate God. As Jesus said in John 14.15, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. In the original language, you can see that the verb will keep is not a command, but a description it's not you must keep my commandments, but you are going to keep my commandments. John 14, 23 is also the same. There's some discussion at whether it's, it's in the, the, which mood it's in, but it's also descriptive in John 14, 23. If, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word. It's like turning on a light switch. If the, if the wiring is right and, and the bulb is, is working and there is electricity, when you turn on the light switch, the power will come on. 
You don't command it to come on, it just does, because that's what electricity in wiring and light bulbs do. In the same way, when someone is truly regenerate, when someone's heart has been changed with the power of the Holy Spirit, they, they, they begin to, as, as we say, they begin to love what they once hated and hate what they once loved. They once loved sin and hated God. Now they hate sin and love God. No, not perfectly, far from it. But their heart has changed. And their, their behavior begins to change in accordance with their heart. They begin to show the fruit of repentance. They, they begin to show their different desires. They begin to show where in the very areas where they once were rebels, they begin to, to show obedience. That's what happens in the heart of someone who's regenerate. And yet, it might take a very long time. There might be some things that change right away and other things that take many, 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 many years to change. And there will be things that even that, that aren't fully sanctified, many things that aren't fully sanctified, all the way even to the very end of their lives. But they will grow. You will grow if you're truly a Christian. Reflect on your, your words and your works over the past week. How are they different from what they were before you came to faith? Are they different? Think about the last, the last month, the last year. Are, are you a good servant or a wicked servant? Now listen carefully. This is not about works-based salvation. This is not about trying to earn favor with God through what you do. You cannot get to heaven by good works, at least not by your good works. You're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. However, the faith that saves is never alone. Works are evidence of salvation. As we read in, in James 2, 17 and 18, so faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from works and I will show you my faith by my works. It's also not about being perfect because, again, none of us is perfect. The only one who is perfect is Jesus Christ. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us, 1 John 1, 8. But the next verse says, if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. One of the main purposes that John wrote his first epistle was to help people know that whether they are saved or not. He wrote it to provide assurance of salvation in true Christians. Now, of course, this also means that it will remove false assurance from false Christians, from unbelievers. The lives of believers will be characterized by obedience. Yes, stumblingly. Even our best works are, are mixed with sin. But what is the trajectory? What is the, the direction of your life? Again, don't just think in the minutia. Think, think broadly from since the time you, you came to say, are you going in Christ-likeness? 
we are here. We understand predestination. We, we don't understand the mystery of predestination, but we understand the doctrine of it. We understand that, that God predestines those who are saved, who are to be saved. He predestines the elect to salvation. But he doesn't just predestine the elect to salvation. He predestines the elect to sanctification, to grow in Christ-likeness. Again, the lives of believers will be characterized by obedience, but the lives of unbelievers will be characterized by disobedience. Please turn with me for a moment to, to 1 John chapter 3. 1 John chapter 3, verses 9 and 10. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning. Notice it doesn't say no one who's born of God sins. Because that would be denial of 1 John 1, 1.8. No one who's born of God makes a practice of sinning. No one who's born of God is, is a life that's characterized by, by sin, by living in, in unrepentant sin. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he's been born of God. By this, listen, by this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. So again, are you characterized, you're left characterized by the, the practice of sin or by the practice of righteousness? Again, not according to your standards, not according to the world's standards, but according to the holy God's standards. parable of the soils back in Luke 8. Remember, there was only there was four kinds of soil, but only one of them bore fruit. The wicked servant's lack of fruit, no fruit, revealed that there was no salvation. What does your fruit say about you? Will you receive the king's commendation and elevation, or will you receive the, the king's condemnation, and confiscation. Are you like the wicked servant? This wicked servant represents those who are, in a, in a sense, they're associated with the king and his community. There's people like this in churches. Very likely people like this in this church. They might even have have good reputations and responsibilities in the church, but their words and their works will reveal that they aren't really part of the church. And I've seen this several times, and sometimes I've been surprised when it happened. Those who professed faith in Christ turned out to be unbelievers. They claim to be, and they even, even think they're servants of Christ, but they're like the crowds who reject Christ. So what happens to such people? What happens to people like the wicked servant? They receive the king's judgment. Verse 25 to 27. They receive the king's judgment. The crowd reacts to the king's sentence there in, in verse 25. They said, Lord, he has 10 minutes. They're saying it's, it's not fair. It's not fair. This guy already has 10 minutes, and you're, you're giving him another one? They don't think the faithful servant deserves more blessings from God. And in a sense, they're right. No one except Jesus Christ 
deserves any blessing from God. Again, this is the extravagance of God's grace. God in his sovereignty is able to give blessings to whomever he will. Now that's the God's sovereignty side of the coin. Again, an election. God, God chooses those upon whom he will confer the blessings of, especially of salvation and everything that's attendant to salvation. But this parable is focusing on the other side of the coin, the, the man's responsibility side of the coin. We have a responsibility to walk in faithfulness and to invest that which God has given us in his kingdom. Are you using what God has given you for the glory of his name and for the advance of his kingdom? What is, I think there's several things in view here, but, but what is one gift that all Christians have received. One gift that all Christians have received. The gospel. The gospel of Jesus Christ. We spoke about this at length on Wednesday evening. We have this treasure in jars of clay. 2 Corinthians 4.7 What are you doing with the treasure of the gospel that has been entrusted to you by God? Are you wrapping it up in a handkerchief and putting it under your mattress? Or are you digging a hole and hiding it in a hole? Or are you investing it in the kingdom of God for the glory of God? Are you, are you hiding the gospel from others or are you spreading the gospel to as many people as you can? You can ask yourself, how long has it been since you shared the gospel with someone? How long has it been since you, you talked with somebody about the glories of Christ? And salvation that can be found only in Him. If you are in the kingdom, it's because someone shared the gospel with you. The least you could do, the very least you could do, is tell somebody else the gospel. But again, I don't think this is just the gospel in here. It's it's fighting sin. Are you fighting against sin? Sin in, and I'm not talking primarily about sin in other people. Are you fighting against sin in your own heart? In your own life? Are, are you seeking to worship God? Again, as we come together on Sundays, as we gather on the Lord's Day, but are you seeking to worship God every day? Seven days a week. Are you seeking to worship God in the, the, the mundane tasks and duties of life? Are you engaged in, in spiritual disciplines? Are, are you in, involved in, in regular study of the word and, and prayer and, and time in, in fellowship with other Christians? Are you seeking opportunities to, to love and serve the saints? These are, these are just a few of the, the, the types of, of things that are, are evident and increasingly evident in the lives of true servants of God. Are you being a faithful servant with that which has been given to you? No excuse will suffice on the day of judgment. The king responds. 
I tell you that to everyone who has, more will be given. But to the one who has not, even that which he has will be taken away. Now, Jesus here isn't saying that the rich are going to get richer and the poor are going to get poor. The context shows us that, that, that Jesus is saying that the faithful servant will be given more responsibility, whereas the, the wicked servants will lose all that they have. Again, like those individuals who once professed faith, but who now deny Christ. They will lose all that they have unless they repent and come to true and living faith. Turn back with me for a moment to Luke chapter 12. You might remember this. This is a, another uh, parable that Jesus tells about faithful versus unfaithful servants. Luke 12, 35 to 48. Jesus is, is warning us here to be He's warning us here to be ready for the coming of the Son of Man. He says in verse 37, Blessed are those servants whom the master finds awake when he comes. The household manager was, was told to, to run the household in the, man's, in the master's absence. And then verse 43, Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. He will be set over all the master's possessions. So you see again, faithfulness leads to more responsibility. Same principle as, as here in our parable this morning. But there were other servants who, in the, the delay of their master's return, beat the other servants and got drunk. What happens to them? Verse 46, the master will come on a day they do not expect and will cut him in pieces and put him with the unfaithful. God's judgment on unfaithful servants. And this is exactly what happens to the king's enemies in Luke 19, 27. Where the, the king commands that those who hated him and didn't want him as king over them, from verse 14, be brought before him and slaughtered. Now there are those who say, well, that's harsh. That's not fair. Packed to pieces. And worse than that, cast into eternal hellfire. Anyone who says that that is not fair or that that is, is too harsh does not understand who God is, does not understand who they are before God. They do not understand the holiness of God and they do not understand the sinfulness of man. God is infinitely holy. And God requires perfect obedience. But the reality is that none have shown perfect obedience. No one except Jesus Christ. And so the only hope is to flee to Christ. All sin must be punished or else God ceases to be just. ceases to be God. All sin will be punished either upon the head of Jesus Christ or upon the head of unrepentant unbelievers. Only two kinds of people. Those who have placed their faith in Christ and those who have rejected Christ. Those who have, have had their sin 
credited to Christ and the righteousness of Christ credited to them and those who stand guilty before the holy God. Two kinds of people. Faithful servants and unfaithful servants. I trust that by God's grace, many among us here are truly faithful servants in the broader sense of the term, but we know that in the reality of the day-to-day life that we're still unfaithful in many ways, that we continually trust in Christ. That all of our sins, past, present, and future, have been placed on Christ. That we're not trying to, to earn our own way to heaven. We receive God's grace and God's mercy and God's forgiveness through Jesus Christ. This is again the righteousness of God's justice. All rebels will be judged and condemned by God. All sin will be punished. And all believers will be exonerated. They're credited with the righteousness of Christ. So this parable provides an encouragement. It provides an encouragement and it provides a warning. It, it, it serves as an encouragement for servants to be faithful and to, to continue to walk in, in, in faith, to continue to walk in repentance when they fail, as we often do. Again, not to retreat back into works righteousness, but to confess sins daily, regularly to God. To trust in the righteousness of Christ. It's an encouragement to be faithful because we know that the Lord will return. Even though it might seem to be a lo- taking a very long time, you might be growing weary in doing good. As you face trials and difficulties and challenges, it, it, it's hard at times. You get tired, get tired of the fight. Fight against the world, fight against the flesh, fight against the devil. It's, it wears you out. And so it's an encouragement to turn back to Christ, back to the power of the Holy Spirit to strengthen you for the fight. And to encourage you as well that, that the, the, the king is going to return. And he's going to reward faithful servants, those who, who are trusting in Christ and have the righteousness of Christ credited to them. parable also serves as a warning to wicked servants and to outright rejectors of Christ. They're both in the same category. They're both under God's condemnation. This is a warning to them, and if that applies to you, this is a warning to repent before it is too late. Galatians 6, 7-9 Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that he will also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. For the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit receive eternal life. And let us not grow weary in doing good. For in due season we will reap if we do not give up. Brothers and sisters, do not give up. The Lord will return and he may return soon. And he will come bringing his reward with him. But for all unbelievers, he will also come, but rather bringing his recompense with him. Benjamin Franklin accomplished many things. Maybe you have accomplished many things in your life. 
But as we sing that there's only one life will soon be passed and only that which is done for Christ will last. Benjamin Franklin did many things, but he was unfaithful in what matters most. There's no doubt that Benjamin Franklin heard the gospel. He was, was friends with the great evangelist, George Whitfield. Probably heard the gospel many times. But his life was full of darkness. It was full of unbelief and immorality. And, and however he is viewed in, in American history, it's what's in God's books that matter. Whoever you are, are, are viewed, what matters is what is in God's books about you. Unless Benjamin Franklin repented sometime before the end of his life, he is receiving now the condemnation of God. And he spoke earlier when, he, when he's 22 and he wrote his epitaph saying his, his body was food for worms. Unless he repented, his worm will not die and the smoke of his torment will go up for all eternity. And if you do not repent, the same is true for you. Revelation 21.12 says, And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. What do God's books say about you? Your only hope is to have your name written in the Lamb's book of life. Your only hope is to trust in Jesus Christ, not in your righteousness, not anything that you can say or do, or even if, even if you could somehow give your body to be burned. But have not love, but your love for God, it profits you nothing. Your only hope is the righteousness of Christ credited to you and your sin credited to him. Your only hope is the regeneration that comes through the Holy Spirit. Your only hope is the, the bearing of fruit that comes through the Spirit's work in your heart. Are you hoping in the only real and living hope? Are you hoping in Jesus Christ and his salvation through him? Let's pray together. Almighty God, we marvel the extravagance of your grace that we realize that, that at best we are unworthy servants but the good works of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ the, the suffering servant have been credited to our account through faith and our sin has been credited to him and so we praise you again that that we are the beneficiaries of your great rewards that have been won for us through Christ and, and that you have left us here with work to do as we anticipate your return. But Lord, also in this, in this passage, we, we see and we tremble before the righteousness of your justice that all unbelievers will receive the punishment that they deserve for their sin. Because any sin, any single sin, is an infinite sin because it is committed against the infinitely holy God. There is infinite punishment for unbelievers. Lord, even in the sound of my voice, there are two kinds of people listening. May you help us all 
is the kind of person that by your grace and for your glory is called a good and faithful servant and is welcomed into eternal life with you. We pray this in Christ's name.